All right, kids, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to part two of the George Orlando interview. Once again, this show is brought to us by our good friends at the Original Music School of Morristown, shaping young minds for over 15 years now. They're now also providing, providing uh, every week, if you go to their Facebook page, you can check out these uh, minute-long uh, uh, video clips, little how-tos and this and that's of uh, the teachers showing kids how to do stuff and doing things. And uh, you can, um, you can uh, go to originalmusicschool.com and also call 973-998-8977. Chances are Dylan's going to be the guy answering the phone unless he's in the bathroom. And don't forget, kids, the first lesson is always free. You good? I'm good. You good, George? I'm good. Let's do it. your students to listen to this podcast like um, the kids and stuff well it's not really because maybe the, old, the older bit, ones would, okay would be good sometimes it gets a little bit adult yeah i feel like i feel like we'll we'll do some kid-friendly episodes down the pike yeah <laughs> you know whatever kids kids these days they've heard everything yeah i mean really like you know i'm sure they've heard their parents say fuck oh yeah at one point or another so you know not all maybe not all the kids but you know i don't know i thought i'd had a lot of fun swearing when I was in fourth grade, so. Oh, know, yeah. I already knew all of them. I oh. grew up in a house where fart was a dirty word. Oh. Yeah. You, like, super conservative. You, when you were raised Catholic? I was raised Catholic. So, like, it just was very Catholic? Pretty Catholic. Okay. Not, it's not insanely Catholic. It was pretty moderate, but I guess it was just the way my, my mom set the tone for the house. So, even yeah. a word like fart was not said. Well, it, like, hmm. for, to, for my mother, and, like, you know, to this day, she gets mad when I when I swear and I, I swear all the time so she's always mad at me. but like <laughs> I remember like but like hanging out with my dad like when when I was a kid um he uh as one of like a little side hustle he had he we we, we would get scrap metal and take it to the take it to the uh, a scrap yard and get money we okay. actually we bought uh we bought our our swimming pool with scrap metal huh and uh but like that's like you know I I remember, like, the first time I heard a really great string of swear words was my dad pinching the web between his thumb and index finger with a pair of pliers. And him just walking away, mother fucking cocksucking piece of fucking fucking pliers. I was like, wow. wow. He became Ralphie from A Christmas Story. <laughs> like, immediately, like, it was just this, uh, it was like, just like this yarn of swear words that I had, like, and like, I had never heard him put together so eloquently. <laughs> it's like, just life changing. And like, and then, like, going into school and like, and like, I'm on the playground with like, the, with my friends and like, you know, one kid says, oh, he, he said motherfucker. Oh, he said motherfucker. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I got I got this. <laughs> <laughs> you never heard cocksucking motherfucking piece of shit, did you? <laughs> oh, game changer. Total game changer. <laughs> there, was a, there was a cheesy movie. We're going to get off topic here. There was a cheesy movie called um, Beat Street Electric Boogaloo. It was an 80s movie. Breaking Electric Break, Boogaloo. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. I've, breaking, I've seen Breaking and Breaking 2 Electric so there, Boogaloo. There was they some kind of song, and, and I was trying to emulate it. It was like a song like, like a Beat Street, the king of the beat. I see yeah. you rocking that beat from across the street. Uh huh. A Beat Street is a lesson, too, because uh, you can't let the street beat you. So anyway, I'm a kid. I'm like 12, and I'm trying to say that, and at some point, accidentally... 
the F bomb comes out. It's not part of the song, but it just I just screwed up. But it's because you're from Nutley and this is just I don't know. It, Italian shouldn't be rapping anyway. So I guess I was don't out tell of my that element. To Joe Pesci. Yeah. Joe Pesci, yeah, of course the curse is gonna come out. But yeah, so that was probably the one and only time I had really cursed in front of my mom. Uh, I, I think she was angry, but at the same time, the context uh, oh, it was like it was like it was the like context a, saved me. It was like a game with with my dad and me and and my my sister too. Like we'd we'd be in the car and it was like, how can we insert swear words into the songs we hear on the radio? I remember like we were we were at the uh, it, it was the first Fidelity Bank on Ridgedale, right around the corner from here, and we were like waiting in line at the like at the uh, the drive through teller and. Uh, the Ramones came on. Uh, I want to be sedated, uh-huh. and my dad just starts going. Twenty, twenty, twenty-four hours to go. I want my fucking money. <laughs> <laughs> and it just became this game of how many times can we insert swear words into a song? Everywhere. <laughs> oh man, like it was. It was like it was. It was a real sport in the basement. <laughs> just like sitting, sitting, listening to the radio or listening to records, and like. You know, just uh, adding adding f bombs wherever wherever possible. That's a lot of fun. You know, I, I mentioned in um, in episode one, uh, we were we were talking about different artists that in, influenced us. I mentioned mm-hmm. Billy Joel, and uh, I, I guess maybe Billy Joel can be viewed as very clean, very adult contemporary, especially because of his you know this stuff that's like radio friendly. Oh yeah. Anyway. So he did an album in uh, in the eighties called uh, the Nylon Curtain, which has yep. Allentown, great Pressure, fucking record, Good Night Saigon, yes, fantastic, great record, record. heavily Beatles influenced. Oh yeah. So I think the second or third track on the album is a song called Laura, which I mean, if you didn't know that he was a Beatles fan, that song would make it it's so obvious, so George Harrison influenced, great piece of work. And he's got this line where he goes, "Here I am, feeling like a fucking fool." Now me, so. Uh, this was 1982 or three, so I guess I was about 12 or 13. So I had never, never heard a musical artist curse like that. Uh-huh. Never. That was my first time. My fa- my parents had bought me this album because I had like every Billy Joel album before that. So now the Nylon Curtain came out, they bought it for me, but they didn't know it was on it. And I guess there wasn't like when the PMRC in the 80s did like they put labels on everything. Yeah, this might have been right before that's that. That's pre that 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 happened in like 87, 88, I yeah, think. Yeah. Yeah. When when like John Denver and and Zappa and and D uh, Snyder from Snyder went Sister, and they, they all went yeah. and they and they were so articulate. Mm-hmm. Especially D Snyder was like he he went in front in front of Tipper Gore. That guy was my hero. Oh, D Snyder's the man. D Snyder, and he still is. And I think he's still awesome. I think these guys. Well, to be able to rewrite "Come All Ye Faithful," <laughs> right? It's we, like a mashup it's, of. It's all of, it is. Uh, we're not gonna take <laughs> yeah, it. <it's, laughs> but it, Twisted Sister, I I didn't appreciate them the same way I appreciate them now. They just were all these cool, like rebellious. You know, rock and roll guys. But now, what I understand is that Twisted Sister was the kind of band where they hashed it out in the clubs, and they were real ass-kicking rock and roll, hardworking bands. There were sm- these were guys that were as good at marketing, business and marketing. Oh yeah, as as good at that as they were rocking out on stage because they were determined to make it their life. And they played. You know, they had gigs. You know, pretty much every night when those kind of clubs existed out in New York and New Jersey. I think those guys are all Long Island guys. 
But uh, but you know, I, we, sometimes we write these bands off. All oh, their hair bands. Oh, it's a you know, it's a hair metal band, and we don't realize the kind of shit, the kind of dirt that they put up with for years. We only see oh the MTV oh they got a vi- isn't that nice? Yeah, they got we videos see, we on see MTV. the tip of the iceberg. No, we don't were, see all the no, all the work underneath. No, they were ass kickers for years, man. So anyway, I don't know how we got on that, but. Um, we're, we're, we're talking about profanity, and yeah. um, you know, so but so like so for someone like Billy Joel to drop an f bomb on an album, that that was pretty shocking, and uh, I had to hide that from my parents for a long time because they're like, oh yeah, Billy Joel, she's got a way about yeah. her. And uh, I was um, trying to think that the, you know this this the song that that you can I to me was like you can tell how much he's so just. Influenced by the Beatles, but don't ask me why. Hmm. Paul McCartney. That song's got Paul McCartney all over it, and, jo- and John Lennon. All yeah, over. it's just it just has that you know that you know all the waiters in your grand cafe. It just has that lilt of a of a of a like an early Beatles tune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just I was like, wow, yeah, you can, you can really tell some of those percussive instruments like yeah. the claves, claves. I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm a musician. I still know how to pronounce that. That's okay. People still yeah, those wooden sticks that you. I still I still get guys. Uh, they'll they'll call me up and ask if it's okay if they bring a, uh, if they bring a cajone to to, to the open mic. <laughs> oh, they night. say cajone. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, cajone. If loves you can't chachi, say it, like, you can't bring it. Yeah, okay, exactly. let's move that way. <laughs> it's all right if I bring Can I, my cajones to this channel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they're attached. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a resounding no right there. <laughs> so, uh, this uh, fr- friend of mine is a composer. Uh, he's out, out in LA right now, but he um, he was just doing a gig where uh, where somebody labeled all of the mic packs because a lot of these with really really big like outsides they kind of have to mic every acoustic against every like orchestra and label it so you know what the hell you're looking at yeah so they they labeled the mic pack that was to go on the cello but they instead of spelling it C E L L O they spelled it C H E L O and I think maybe there might have been a W at the end. Shalau. Yeah. So at first, I, I might be embellishing with the W at the end, but it was definitely spelled C H E L O, something like that. So anyway, so he he put it up on Facebook. He was like, "What the hell, man?" He's like, "Music education has dropped so far." And then somebody chimed in and said, "That's actually the Spanish spelling oh. for cello." So it could be that somebody whose Spanish was their first primary language may have done the labeling. So he was like, oh, thank you for pointing that out, because I just assumed somebody had no idea. And it's interesting, because how many times have we heard somebody misspell something like guitar? You know, we were talking about mispronunciation of Mm. cajon and things like that. (laughs) But yeah, not that many people know how to spell guitar. If if they're not in the musical world, and I guess you got to be forgiving of that. It's it's not, Mm. you know, that forte. That brings back a memory from a long time ago. I think it was it was kindergarten or preschool or something. We had to, we we would get like letters of the alphabet, and we had to make a whole book with you know we would cut out pictures of things that started with that letter, and we got like A Ardvark. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. We got to the letter K. I am an Ardvark. And I was like, oh, we could put a guitar on here. <laughs> I didn't know guitar started with G. I Qatar. thought it was a, a guitar. Guitar. <laughs> my, my parents got a good laugh out of that. And now well, I do two years later. A little bit of friendly advice, Dylan. Never trust a woman who knows how to spell gonorrhea. Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> 
gonorrhea. You, you never run out of jokes, ever. I'll never. I, you know what? The day I run out of jokes, that's the day I run out of air. <laughs> <laughs> so, George, um, you've 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 done tour. You've you've toured a bit, a little bit. Right on. So, like, uh, that was really the only artist. That one guy. I don't. Did we talk about this on? Not yet. No. Okay. We're coming back to it. Okay. But um, so um, like uh. What what started that first tour? Had um, was this like you know what? How that how that all start? So the artist's name was Peter Sincotti, good friend of mine. He um, he he was getting like I said, he was a jazz artist. He was sort of like a Harry Connick Jr. originally. He was a, a piano virtuoso mm. and had a really nice smooth voice. People looked at him as sort of like a young Sinatra. Blah blah blah. Um, he eventually started to move into more like the pop world where his songs were having more of a modern say He was doing his own writing. Instead of covering the American songbook, he was writing his own songs, and so they had a modern sound. Um, the previous tour, before I started working with him, my buddy, a bass player, was with him. And then uh, he, he needed a guitar player, and I got recommended. So I dug in, I learned the music, um, and I ended up winning the spot. Um, and then, you know, for the next, like, maybe six years or so, whenever he had a live gig, uh, if he had a tour overseas, tour here in the States, uh, any studio work that he did, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be his guitar player. So that's how that started. And, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience. I really, I thank God for that because I really, I saw countries and stuff that I don't know if I ever would have. And I don't really have the opportunity to travel that much, you know. Of course, the vi the typical vacations—that's all fine and good. But, mm -hmm. um, but you know, I went to Lithuania. I went to Japan. I went to Hawaii. I never thought I would see Hawaii with my own eyes. <laughs> um, you know, yes, we had local gigs in in New York, but uh, but it was you know like the European. We had a a, a tour, a European tour in 2013, that we you know we did England and Italy. Uh, Germany, Switzerland, you know, some of those countries we had like multiple dates, so we do, you know, more than one city in those countries. And I, I guess at the time I must have thought like this was the beginning of this is how my life was going to be. You have to appreciate all those opportunities because you don't know how long they're going to last mm -hmm. because that, that was for a season. And considering how the music business is, my season of six years, I would say that's kind of a long stretch. The way things are going, people are very indispensable. You are not, you know, there's no, there's no guarantees. And so you might have like a dream gig and, whoa. That's my ride. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh my God. Um, this is something, this is important. Anyway, but it was, uh, that's kind of a long-winded uh, way of saying that um, that I was really fortunate enough to have an opportunity, yes, to do some touring, and, and it was a great learning experience for me. Did you notice a difference uh, in, in the crowds and the audiences in Europe versus in the States? I noticed it big time in Japan. Japan, they were very polite and reserved. And uh, and I remember somebody, another musician, that said, like, look, if, if, they're, not, if they're not, if they seem to be, like, dead, like, no expression during the song... Don't worry about it. They're with you. It's their culture. They believe it's being polite, 
by allowing you to finish the performance. Then, right. of course, then, you know, and even even then, it's it's relatively, you know, it's polite and reserved. Of course, we weren't kiss, tearing up the place. <laughs> um, so even what we were bringing was relatively conservative. But, um, but that was where I saw the biggest difference was Japan. Um, Europe. So, okay, so this particular artist that I was touring with, I think he hit it biggest in Italy and France, and and maybe a, to a lesser extent some of the other countries around that, but I saw his strongest response in Italy and France, and that was kind of where they were way more zealous. In New York, nobody, you know, a, a prophet has no honor in his own town. So no matter how great you are, you know, because he, he's a New York, he was born and raised in New York, and most of us guys that were playing with him were from the New York area, and we would go to some place in Italy and we would they'd have like a, a green room like a dressing room or something prepared for you and there would be a spread that you could say was fit for a king literally i mean just the most amazing and you know every luxury there was one place that actually had my own dressing uh i guess you would call it like a camper it, it was it was like this whole separate area that was just for me and they stocked the refrigerator and i'm nobody who, who, who am I? And nobody heard of me. But but they made those provisions because that's how much they appreciate the artists and everything. We played a bunch of gigs out here. I remember one place wouldn't even give us water. Oh. <laughs> like like we like we there's were of the thinking like if you're there's not a gonna, hose out back. <laughs> one one I probably shouldn't even mention the place, but there was one place in um, San Francisco that we played at that um, not only did they not stock the green room with anything but we were not allowed to bring alcohol in there Criminal. so, so I mean, we were the thinking like if you're not going to give it to us we'll we'll get a bottle of wine i'm not right. saying we were going to get hammered yeah like uh, you're not we, buying a case of no, whiskey but like no just we, I mean, a little you know, something we felt professional enough to say we'd like you know a glass of wine or something like that we were not allowed to even buy a bottle of wine and bring it into the green room so that there's there is a huge difference and there are other artists that i know that could probably attest to this that when they go overseas especially to europe there is definitely a difference in how they value artists mm. versus here there's some i don't know what it is but artists have generally become devalued here and maybe we've played a part of that because of what we accept um i just saw a youtube video uh which the artist had stopped taking hundred dollar gigs and he went through the, and the whole video talks about several i think it's at least five reasons why people who value their own craft and everything should just stop taking these hundred dollar gifts and, and and really a hundred dollar gig it's really just up to us to say are we as a, just as a group as a as a as a race of musicians are we do we value ourselves enough mm. where we're going to stop taking these hundred dollar gigs and mm. and i don't know i guess that's all other discussion but uh but that's a long-winded way of answering your question that yes there's absolutely a difference in attitudes and how you're treated in other countries. And um, I met this uh, I met this really nice fella, uh, Ben Lawrenson. He's uh, he's from Norway. I met him. I guess it was about four four years ago. Um, my my bass player Victor Phillips had made friends with this fella and came down to one of my open mics, looking for work. Like he he was new, <laughs> new to the states. Came here uh, with his wife and, and young son to, you know, get him a good education, get him into a good school and all this stuff. And, and I'm sorry, where was he from again? Norway. Okay. And uh, 
great, beautiful voice, really talented cat. And he comes in on one of my open mics and, you know, I'm talking to him about, you know, what, what, that, what the median income is for a musician in this area. And I'm like, eh, we usually, you know, if you're going out for a solo gig, you know, m minimum I'll take is 150, depending on the size of the room. Some spots, you know, if I walk in, it's a big, it's a big fucking room. I'm gonna walk in and say 300, you know, and we'll, and then we'll haggle. You know, I'll, I'll let him dick her down to 250, and you know, okay. And, he, and then, and then, you know, flash forward, he plays a few gigs around around North Jersey and a little bit in New York, and then he just, he just was like, fuck this, I'm going back to Europe. So he still, he like, he still, I, I'm pretty sure he still lives in the states. Or own, or own like has a house in the states, but he still plays all over Europe because it's just like the, the money's a little bit better or a lot bit better. But the audiences were the thing that was like his, you know, in 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 places like Belgium, Germany, France, UK, like you're not going to see people, you know, pulling out their cell phones and taking a video of you. And then sitting down, head down, sending it, tweeting it, and, you know, all that shit. They're just going to sit and listen or they're going to stand and dance. They'll, yeah. they'll stand up and dance and right. be into the moment. Be present. Be in, present yeah. in the moment. And I feel like that's something like culturally in America is like just become, be, become lost. Like I, I, it blew my fucking mind the first time I went. I was, I was, the first time I saw it watching like going like a 4th of July fireworks and just seeing just this sea of schmucks with their cell phones out. For fireworks, like if of all the things in this world that that are enjoy this moment, look up into the sky and watch the colors and hear the boom and the pop. Right, uh -huh. and there's all these idiots with their cell phones out. Either, you're you're it, blocking your own view with a giant your, yeah. iPad. <laughs> exactly. You mean to tell me you're giving this moment up yeah. that way you can watch it later on your shitty yeah, little and you're gonna, screen? And you're going to share this on Facebook, like, right? Really? Like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. This is a moment. This is the, like, everything else in this world has gone away. This is the thing that we can all agree. Enjoy the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, sit down with your family. Put your arm around your uh, around your significant other. Hold them close and look up and, and just enjoy the sparkly colors mm -hmm. for that 15-minute show. But no, no. Oh, 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 look at that. Oh, it's amazing. Look at, oh, my God. It looks like a star. Oh my god, it's amazing! Like Louis C.K. the comedian, ruining your life with this shit. <laughs> Louis C.K. the comedian. He was talking about how he was. Uh, his daughters were. Uh, they were at a dance. One of his daughters. They had a school dance, and so he's there watching. And he said, all these parents are holding up their phones or their iPads in front of their face. He said, it just looked like a sea of people that were in the witness protection program. <laughs> which is like blocks everything. And, and he's like standing there going like, just look at your kid. The resolution is amazing on the kid. Yeah. Oh, the kid's coming through 1080p right there in front yeah. of you. <laughs> but what are they doing? They're recording it so they can put it up on Facebook later and go, yeah, you watch it, my kid, which is just absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's I, I can't, It blows um, my mind. <laughs> uh, when we were at the open mic night, obviously Nick Kina, um, he uh, hosts many open mic nights throughout New Jersey. If you're a musician, please come out. It's it's great for you. Great to network with other musicians. Thanks, and, George. And uh, yeah, the whole thing is awesome. So, <laughs> any hoozle. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, we we were there, and uh, and I've been experiencing this. I I know nothing about sport. I don't follow any sport whatsoever. But what my wife tells me, because she knows more than I do, and she's not a sports fan either. Uh, World Series is going on right well, now. It's, it's over now. It's over. 
I did a gig at the, the Canal House here in New Jersey, and uh, it was going very well. People were receptive to everything, but at the same time, most of the people that were there were watching the game, and they were way more engaged in the game. And I don't have a problem with them watching the game. I don't even care if you ignore me all night long, but the screaming and shouting over the game while somebody's actually performing just shows where, again, people don't necessarily value artists and musicians that are there to perform. That you're there for the people. You know, obviously you're getting paid, but you want to put on a good show for the people. We all know that we sort of obsess over our song list and everything. We think about what's, you know, what's going to work for the people. It's not, I don't think any one of us is that level of an asshole. We're like, I'm there for me and I'm going to play for me. No, I think we all kind of consider on some level what's going to what's gonna work for this venue and everything yeah, like that. Absolutely. So we, we do care. And yes, we are actually... I don't know how you guys feel, but I would think that a lot of us on some level are affected by a group of people that are so indifferent to our performance that not not that they're not paying attention to us or necessarily, but that they can, but in the middle of our songs, can scream at the top of our lungs over a game. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and me personally, I've never understood it. I said that I'm not a sports fan. I see these people, the base, I don't know, football, whatever it is, Somebody scores a point. People lose their freaking minds. And I look at that, and I don't get it because it's kind of like if Johnson & Johnson, if their stock went up, and somebody went, fuck, yeah, yeah, their stock went up 14 points. And you ask them, oh, that's great. Do you have stock in the company? No. Yeah. Well, I was, I was like, especially for college football and college basketball, like, um, you know, I, I've all these, I, I know these all these knuckleheads. Like they went to County College of Morris, and they're Notre Dame fans. Like, you never even been near that school. Mm -hmm. You're you're half Irish, so now you're a Notre Dame. Fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every game counts, and they're all like all all like, they get crazy about that like a college team, and it's not even the same team for three years because they're college kids. They're 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 on the team for three years. Maybe four mm -hmm. if, if they're if, if they're good enough to be a freshman starter. But like when I when I lived in Arizona, um, I was I was running open mics out in Arizona and 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 in Phoenix and 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 playing gigs all around and and I had to become a sports fan to keep the crowd. Right. And I right. brought that back with me. So like, but like NASCAR was this huge thing and and, and college football was, is a huge thing out there and and. So I would have to, you know, and I'm playing in a bar, and there's, you know, 25 TVs. So, you know, just look up. Oh, look, look at that. Dale Earnhardt Jr. just turned left, and he turned left again. And he turned left again, and he's turning left again. <laughs> and, would, and, like, people would laugh and kind of, like, you know, get that on, you know, taking the piss out of it, right, laughing right. at it, but watch, but still engaged and watching football and going, you know, oh, here come the Cardinals, being the Cardinals, they're losing 34 to, not to three, you know, <laughs> at the half. But like, you know, I've kind of learned how to bring them back in. It's it's a great skill. I wish I had that skill. Maybe it's something that I can learn. It's it's just like, a, you it, know, like, you know, out of, like out of the corner of my eye, just watch the score, you know. It's easier for, for me. It's easier when I'm watching baseball because I am a ba like out of all the sports, hockey and baseball are my two favorite sports. So like I can I can watch that and be engaged and enjoy it. Right, right. I enjoy those sports, but like you know I'll you know during during playoffs this se this season with 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 baseball, watching the Yankees come mm -hmm. so close, and then watching you know watching watching the games in between songs, I'll just get the mic and he's like all right we're in the bottom of the fourth inning and a 2-2 count with two men on and the score is 2-2 here comes the 2-2 pitch oh and now we got a full count 
and just like get you know in between songs, get people engaged and laugh yeah. because they'd rather listen to me sing. You know, they'd rather listen to some music and then hear me BS about this the, the game. Yeah, li- I mean, you're getting in there with them. Yeah, I'm I'm in it with them. I wouldn't dare do that because I know unless I was doing something like really obviously ironic. Right. Like if I said stuff like, "Oh, the Yankees just scored a touchdown" or something <laughs> silly like that. But, but other than that, I wouldn't. Because of where I am, I wouldn't really attempt to comment on the games the way you do right now. So I think it, it you really, as a musician, you're really going to have to just kind of come to terms with the fact that, yes, there are going to be people there at those performances, oh, yeah. that they are about the game. And, yes, they're probably going to scream out at a really unopportune time. The best it, thing it, I can it, say it happened, is... It happened on Monday. Yeah. Um, at the open mic night. Yeah, we were all there. At, 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 this past, just this past Monday, um, when you were up playing, people people screamed during a thing, and then um, that kid, that guy David was up, and then when the, the black cat ran across the field at the Giants game, Giants-Cowboys. Oh, I saw that. Today. And everyone was yeah. freaking out. Like, everyone <laughs> starts screaming at the TV, and Dave totally lost his place. Like, it totally, it totally fucked him up for, like, good, like, 20 seconds. It felt so bad. <laughs> And like I can't, I can't scold the whole bar, you know. No, no, of course. <laughs> I can't just walk around like, shh, shh, shh. <laughs> this guy's singing a song. But but let me say this though, <laughs> I, your your song selection is going to matter in mm-hmm. moments like that. And the, I'm not religious anymore, like I was when I was younger. But there is a Bible verse that I remember that says, "Don't cast your pearls among swine." Yep. Obviously, it's a waste to save your best and most heartfelt things from moments, and I'm not calling the people in the bar swine, but what I am saying is that in that venue, in that they're kind of gonna, atmosphere... They're not going to appreciate yeah, it. You don't save either your your originals that are very you know meaningful to you or even covers that might have like something very special. Fuck that stuff, because it's, it's just going to be wasted in that moment. Yeah, I you, would say, do the stuff that's very lighthearted and fun that you already have decided in your heart. It kind of won't matter if they if somebody scores and everybody shouts out and everything. Y- y- you won't get your soul crushed in that moment. Um, yeah, that's no, so true. And you, like it's like picking your battles and feeling at your crowd. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those things that's kept me. You know. I've had I've had really good relationships with the bars and the venues that I work in because I'm able to feel out the crowd and 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 uh, you know if it's a game night and it's a game that like people in the bar really give a crap about that okay first set we're gonna just keep this happy and silly and I'm gonna play some I'll I'll play some Billy Joel and some Paul Simon and everyone's gonna oh I, I like that song yeah cool yep. mm-hmm. but like you know if I yeah if I if I if I you know start the set with ballads. <laughs> They're gonna get pissed mm-hmm. because they want they want to keep their energy up. They they're watching the game and they're drinking their Red Bull and vodka and getting really mad because you know they're betting on the game or whatever. So let's keep it happy. You know? Right. Let's, you know. I will say something about those early days when I was playing in church all the time, is that I had an absolute captive and engaged audience. Oh now, yeah. Now part of that was because I was writing my songs. For that, every song had a biblical lesson in it, and then I would craft those songs with like, oh, this one has sort of like a Phil Collins thing where there's like a drum. So there, the arrangements were different, but it was I was giving a message, and that's what they wanted. You know, nobody wanted a song that was just sort of fluff. Everybody wanted the song to have something that could that could impart something into them. So at least what what I remember fondly about those years is that I didn't have to contend 
with people that were sort of like not that into it. Everybody, no matter what age they were, teenage, you know, people that were elderly, everybody was was really engaged. And maybe that's what makes me like kind of sensitive to now being in situations where people are, that's not the case. Mm. Uh, because I, I have these fond memories of when I used to take the stage and people were like, oh, I wonder what pearls of wisdom are going to be shared now for me that I could take home with me as opposed to now we play. It's like, oh, is that guy still singing? Shut up. I want to hear what the how the Giants are doing. <laughs> what, um, what, what started turning you away from doing like, like church gigs and, and religious music? What was what? Satan? <laughs> <laughs> um, he does throw a hell of a party. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I was. I mean, I was like I said, I was raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, then I actually got born again when I was sixteen, and sort of was in that world for a long time. Didn't it hurt getting born again? Oh my gosh! <laughs> they had to take four pints of blood. But um, you know, it, it, your it, poor it, mother. It was definitely it was an intense, more committed kind of religion, and also that was a great place as a songwriter. Like I said, that was a great place for me to now, you know, my music meant stuff to people. People who didn't, like, if I wrote a rap song, old people would come up to me. It's like, I normally don't like rap, but I love that song. It, you know, it, it, because the that's what they cared about was the message. Hmm. Um, why did I move out of that? Um, I just really, it, it just didn't work for me. I mean, just uh, the, the, the organized religious aspect of it wasn't for me I just I'm really trying to find a way to abbreviate something that I could probably talk about for a hundred hours in a row but essentially um, I didn't feel like my beliefs lined up with that kind of faith anymore um, as a musician you know I mean those churches need music churches need musicians they need they, it's music is what they use to promote themselves. It's what they use to capture people. There's that emotional element in a service. Mm -hmm. So music is a, is a very, very important uh, currency in churches. So they, they, and I'm going to use this word carefully, they value, I was going to say value. That's, a, that's fair to say, I think. Uh, it, it would be if they actually put the action behind valuing Musicians. What I find is is they they will they have this need to use musicians because of what they look to accomplish. Um, I I did feel I, I thought that I was loved and accepted for a long time, but what I found was that I was a utility. That they needed me as a utility because there was a goal of promoting the image of the church. Um, I don't want to roll everybody into what there's there's great churches. I really find that the smaller local churches are great. The bigger mega churches tend to be more machine like where there is sort of like it's an organization. Oh, it's uh, like 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 the Joel Osteen yes, kind of yes. churches. So that's, so that's where the makers. money is for musicians. That's where the money is, but I would warn I I would say guard yourself. And I, <laughs> like I I mean I'm actually writing a book that'll be out probably next year. Um, called The Greatest Show on Earth, which talks about the illusions of megachurches. And I have a lot to say about that. Um, I, can't and, wait, I can't wait to read that. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's... And, and I'm looking to just warn people who might be really dazzled by this, the, the illusion of love and acceptance and purpose that might come from a megachurch. But 
there's more to it than that. Mm. Um, and then as far as musicians are concerned, like I said, there's when there's a page like a steady paycheck offered to you. I've had guys that are not religious that have heard of my situation, like, oh my God, you work at this church and you get paid for every service. It sounds great. And I, I like I want to put the break. I go. I know it sounds great from the outside, but it's there's a lot to it, and uh, I, I would I would just caution anybody from just being too quick to accept a position like that. Like we we could talk more about that, but that's not what this call it like a pray is. for pl- uh, pray for play scenario. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yikes. I don't know what to label it as, but uh, but I, I I have and you know we don't have the time to talk about it here, but I have a lot of experiences and you know me coming from a religious background. I mean I I wanted a real experience. I wanted to I wanted everything to be genuine, mm-hmm. and I I started to learn over time that it wasn't as genuine as as I thought it was. And when I saw a lot of the the, the showmanship of it, that this was an image um, that I was being used. In order to promote the image of this organization, um, that's why I, say, I was careful to say value musicians. I know they need musicians; they want them, and they will use them as a utility. But um, but will they value them? That's where the rubber meets the road. Is is how somebody treats you? Um, are you a person, or are you just a utility for them to use? And so, uh, to, so getting back to your original question about me transitioning out of that. Um, you know, I didn't feel that I was really as religious, you know, to really be part of that organization or organizations like it. And, um, and then as a musician, you know what? Yeah, it was steady money, but was it worth it to, it sounds a little dramatic, but to sell my soul, you're selling your soul, you know, uh, to go and pretend like everything is all right around if you're if you're part of an organization where you're like you know that they're they're sort of promoting one image but they're not they're really just about just getting more parishioners in because parishioners are going to donate donations mean furtherance of the organization that means but and of course then i i'm gonna talk about this in the book but then you have pastors that are living in multi-million dollar houses and stuff and you the congregant like you're struggling and they don't even want to like talk to you about it. Like they're just like, I don't have time for that. My father died of cancer, lost my house. I'd been divorced a few years before that. So there's just a lot of things that I had really, that seemed to contradict what I was taught about my faith. And I don't want to get into a whole theological discussion, but, but because of those things, because of those struggles, it just made me not have the same conviction as some of those other worship leaders up there that were really singing those things, like believing it and everything. And I just couldn't feel it. So I feel like maybe that derailed some of their hopes. Like, oh, this guy, we can't really use him the way we had hoped to because he's he's just feeling some conflicts about this and not really feeling like he can be a worship leader. Because I, I actually opted. I just kind of approached them one day and said, I don't think I could do this anymore. So that was when, like, the pastors seemed to not really respond to my hurts. Now, again, this is relevant if you're a musician that's going to be working for a church, you better be like okay with just having no. Sp- I'm not saying this is going to be your experience, but you kind of need to prepare yourself. You may not have the support and the nurturing from a religious leader because they they kind of you know they call themselves pastors. A pastor is essentially a shepherd, and what does a shepherd do? Shepherd takes care of a flock. Okay, taking care of a flock doesn't mean give me your donations and then we don't have any other contact. Uh, 
unfortunately, my experience with the specific church, the mega church that I was in, that was what happened, is that none of my struggles, none of my difficulties mattered. Um, and, and that was kind of where, again, that if you wanted to know why did I start kind of moving away from that, you know, I, I just didn't feel like it was real like it was supposed to be. And so, uh, so again, speaking to you musicians, if you're going to take a position at a church, I think you kind of need to really be settled within yourself that if you get zero support, if you don't have any connection whatsoever uh, with the spiritual aspect of the leadership there, if you're cool with that, great. You know, then it won't be a problem. Uh, in my situation, once I started to see that things were not quite as real as I thought they were when I first showed up, that was actually something that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't accept. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned before that there are musicians, good friends of mine that are still in that situation. They're still doing it, still collecting those paychecks. I feel like they've sort of just kind of like, it's just like dead faced sort of like, I, I'm good by myself. I don't, you know, I don't get any support from my leadership. Fine. Whatever. Um, as long as the check clears. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, they, they can speak for themselves. Maybe they could say, oh, no, the pastors are very supportive of me. Whatever. But I'm just saying that my situation was that I met many times with the pastors to talk about, look, the Bible says this. The Bible says that God will heal if you, you know, if the leaders come and pray the prayer of faith or if you, or that God will provide if you're faithful to God, if you're faithful in giving your tithes to the Lord, that he'll provide for you when you're in need. All those things. And I was like, how do I live with the fact that we keep proclaiming that w that we proclaim one thing, but then our experience is different? And they, generally speaking, they want you to just sort of, in faith, just sort of, and this is my words, ignore it. That's what you have to do. But um, so so you know, a musician. Oh my God! Like we all know that it's sometimes this is a labor of love. What we do that you're just making just enough to scrape by, mm -hmm. and then somebody's telling you, "Well, you're supposed to give ten percent of your income to the church." But don't worry, because any time that you're in need, God's going to be right there and swoop in, it, and and they're gonna they're gonna fortify it with like all these amazing testimonies. You're gonna hear like the most ridiculous things, like, "Oh, we had no money for groceries," and then I opened my front door, and there were five bags of groceries there, so praise God. God. You're going to hear all that stuff, but most of it is unconfirmable. Most of it is just people uh, over-exaggerating situations. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just warning to musicians, once again, I said it a few times, but I'm going to say it again. If you get involved with the church, just be careful. Please, please contact me and we'll talk at length. We'll talk <laughs> ad nauseum about it. Um, Churches sometimes can provide a, a, a way for you to have a steady income, but uh, but especially those mega churches and the Protestant ones, it, it it may cost you more than you think. So that's the end of my rant there. <laughs> Sorry, guys. No, it's all right. <laughs> that's good information, man. So what's um? So you got so the you're you're in the process of writing this book. It'll be out next year. Next year, it's called what, the, what, the Greatest what? Show on Earth: Illusions of the Mega Church. That's the book. I really i I want to read that. Yeah, I want to. I want to read all of that. Mm, awesome. What 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 else is coming up for you next year? Because we're already into November, so we can we can we can talk about next year. And we then, can but, talk turkey now. Yeah, I have. <laughs> oh, I finally said a good joke oh, on the show. He nailed it. <laughs> I have. Uh, I have two goals. Uh, one of them is pr pretty simple and a lot more attainable. The other one is more of like kind of like a dream goal. So the first one is. Um, is to really put together a funk soul band, uh, like a like danceable music, that 
The venues that I'm playing at now, which I'm doing solo, and we talked about this before, mm. I'm doing backing tracks and stuff like that. I would love to build it to a place where I could have an actual band of musicians. Um, Dylan. Yeah. So when uh, when I came to Tavern Off the Green, uh-huh. it was the first time I was there. Um, you guys did Jungle Boogie. Hell yeah. And I was like, this is pretty much a rock band. Forgive me if I'm inaccurate, but you know, it's kind of pretty much what it sounded like. But it's a rock band doing a bang up job at doing this funk song. So I was yeah. having a great time. You hit the nail right on the yeah. head there. I love so, it. I love when they do it. Because that's such a great dun, 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 yeah. dun. I, I um, love when they do it because I'll, I'll, I'll jump right on the stage and go, get up with the get down. Get down. Get down. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing the solo gigs right now, but I really would like to build it to a point where maybe eventually I would like to have an actual full band um, I mentioned before that I'm doing the lead vocals for a tribute band that does Tower of mm-hmm. Power music, so that's soul and funk. Um, I would like to maybe bring that to the Jersey side. That That's happening in New York once a month, but I would love the means to put together a live band that just... See, see, people, if you put out a flyer that says, oh, George Orlando's at the Canal House, well, who the hell is George Orlando? It just doesn't do anything for anybody. But forget about the name, but what if you put out that the Canal House is having a funk and soul dance night, it becomes an event. It, mm-hmm. it gives some uh, people, oh, I would love to, you know, the ladies want to come out and maybe dance. Maybe that's not something that happens that often. So I do have the desire to maybe keep doing what I'm doing now and, and slowly build it to a place where maybe there will be a situation where I can afford to have a full band playing all those great classic funk and soul songs that just make people want to move their ass and shake their ass. So, okay. The second thing that I want to do is I mentioned before that I like Pink Floyd. Okay. But I like any band where the live show, the theatrics of the live show, is as much a part of the show as the music itself. Right. So you talk about Kiss and Alice Cooper and... Like lasers and fog machines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like I love the idea of if the song has a story, that we could act out the story. Um, you know, King Diamond. I was a big fan of King Diamond and Merciful Fate. King Diamond always did concept albums. Pink Floyd did concept albums. I, I, I feel like somehow we've settled into a place where maybe it's embarrassing for us if we put on more of a show than just playing the music. I really want to put together a band. I'm really into things like, um, you know, horror movies. I love horror movies. And I love albums. I love artists that aren't afraid to dabble with that a little bit. Again, I, met, I referenced Alice Cooper before. Love King Diamond and stuff like that. And I think there's, you know, a, a lot of fun in putting together like a Halloween-themed band that isn't afraid to put on some ghoulish outfits and makeup. And have a little fun. If you're going to do cover songs that are Halloween-based, like Thriller and Ghostbusters, and I always feel like someone's watching me, but also writing original music that might be, you know, Tim Burton-esque in its way, fuck, have fun with it. You know, do This Is Halloween from The from the Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, I've thought about this, and I, I wrote one song. I might do this for the podcast, but it's a song called The Blade, which is a little bit about Jack the Ripper. It's, a, it's really about people who betray each other in the game of love. You played that at, played one, that at, open one, mic at one of my jams yes. a few months ago. Yeah, yeah I, I was like on that. a plane to London. I'd never been to England before. And when I was thinking about London, I was thinking about all the movies where old London, 1800s London is portrayed. So I was like, oh, you know, obviously it's modern day now, but oh, I'm going to be in London. 
and Jack the Ripper came into my brain, and then I started to think, write this song about Jack the Ripper, which really turned out to be about people who betray each other in the game of love. So yeah, I would I want to put together a band in which we go down that road where we go down the sort of Alice Cooper-esque road where we can put together kind of like a horror rock show together. So who knows? It's I'm great at at like the dreaming. Mm-hmm. I suck at the uh, the actual organizing. The execution. And the, yeah. So you know who knows? Maybe I just gotta <laughs> Don't just make it happen one day. Well, you know what? On that note, like you know what? I want to hear it. I want you to play the blade. Okay. I would love to hear that. You song. got it. I, I really dug that. You played that. I, I think it was back in July. First time I heard you play that at one of the open mics, and it really uh, it captured it captured my attention. Oh, sweet! Because it was such a it was it was it had a good hook. It was it was a fun song. I really I really enjoyed mm. it. So uh, thank you for that. The dark love song, right? So we can go to uh, we can look you up on YouTube, mm-hmm. and you have GeorgeOrlando.com. Fortunately, there's actually a music video for The Blade. Sweet. So, again, George Orlando, you can go to YouTube and put in George Orlando, The Blade, or the, the song is actually called The Blade, Streets of London, if you want to put that whole thing in there. But if you just put George Orlando, The Blade, you'll probably get it. And there's an actual music video. Right on. So, uh, yeah. So we're going to get a little stripped-down version right now. Yeah. All right. All right, kids. Without any further ado, here comes The Blade by George Orlando. Red, red, red wine Pouring out into the white chapel streets The perfect crime You disappear in shadows Nothing left but bloody sheets All the papers said it was a crying shame just a madman playing out a dying game Where the world around you is a freak show parade Hey London, you better keep your eyes On the direction of the blade Soft skin, bright eyes Waiting and hoping for a warm and tender hand Sweet whispered lies Cutting down the flowers with the steel at his command All the papers said it was a crying shame Just a madman playing out a dying game Where the world around you is a freak show parade Hey sisters, you better keep your eyes On the direction of the blade Another river of red, red wine Well, that's all that he thinks she is But as quick as a kiss With a flick of her wrist She cut him down Now the river was his Whoa, oh, 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 oh 
on the streets of London. Whoa, oh, 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 oh. Whoa, oh, 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 oh. All the papers said it was a bad man down. Just a woman turning the tables around. Who's the player now? And tell me who's getting played. Hey, brothers, you better keep your eyes on the direction of the blade. On the streets of London, whoa, oh, 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 in the direction of the blade, oh, 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 So, boys and girls, that was uh, part two of the interview with George Orlando. That song, The Blade, a fantastic tune. You can check it out if you go to YouTube and you type in George Orlando, The Blade. And uh, he's a fantastic person. We're really glad we had him in the studio. And uh, I want, once again, I want to mention this show is now going to be available on iTunes, Spotify, and the Google Play. So if you go to You're Good, you'll find it. You will. And you can go to NickKena.com. And you can go to, uh, you got to go to original music school or else or else.com no that's not the name of it it's <laughs> original music school.com those are our sponsors and also called 973-998-8977 george is in the bathroom dylan you good i'm good you good i'm great george you good oh, great show mm-hmm.